Good morning. Good morning, John. Thank you. Several of you are aware that two weeks ago I lost my Bible. And I have been brokenhearted. Why would a body be brokenhearted over losing the Bible? my best friend, but I do have a replacement, but I'm still brokenhearted over that one. Why? The notes. The notes. There were 40 years of notes in that Bible. Those were learning notes. My teaching notes are all on the computer two and three times backed up. But I got a real good blessing because I took out of retirement the Bible I was using before that Bible. And what I have in here are salvation dates and baptism dates and all kinds of things that I hadn't looked at for 40 years. So, if you think if it was just a... If I had one of these and I misplaced it, uh, how brokenhearted might I be? Not so much. I'm not going to come and take another one from the pew. That's not the point. We need to make this ours. Every time you open it and you see something, put a note in there. Every time somebody in your family is born or baptized or married, write it in there. If there's somebody that's really, really doing something, they've got four or five points in the message, write it in there. That's what this looks like from 40 plus years ago. They're, they're everywhere. And guess what? They're good notes. So, here we are. We're in 2 Peter. So, I'm in deep mourning, but I also got a great blessing. We're in 2 Peter, and we're into chapter 2. 2 Peter only has three chapters. Growing in Christ, false teachers, and watching for Jesus. Chapter 1, we're talking about adding to our faith, the virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, etc., the steps in Christian growth. And then, in chapter 2, Peter takes an about face and he says, excuse me, while you're doing that, watch out. So you look there and you see um, the warnings, chapter 1, be pure. Let's clean up our act. Let's get closer and closer to Jesus. Chapter 2, be aware. Because false teachers will come in. We'll see a verse in here a little bit later on for Acts. In Acts, when Paul tells the elite elders out of Ephesus, that people will come in like wolves in sheep clothing. Be aware. And then finally, be diligent as we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, down the perspective, looking within, looking around, looking ahead, I look at what's happening in current events and I'm not so much looking ahead as I am looking up. I don't know that there's so much more ahead, so let's look up. You've seen so many times, remind and remember, and chapter 2 is no exception, reminders. Why do you think he has to tell us over and over again that he wants to remind us of something? Why is that? We have a tendency to forget. That's exactly right. So, we're going to shift gears in chapter 2. Chapter 1, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith, but... In chapter 2 he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. 
you read the Old Testament, and there's some wonderful prophets there. You know, you think of Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, but I jumped over Jeremiah for a specific reason. Jeremiah was facing false prophets. Jeremiah had this, Jeremiah came in and he had so many different object lessons. He comes in with this yoke over his head and he's explaining that the nation of Israel is going to come under bondage with Babylon. A false prophet comes over, takes the yoke off of him and breaks it. In the first kings, Ahab, God wanted to, to have Ahab uh, be done in. And so there were false prophets that came and actually pretended they have bullhorns and they're going to say, just like this boar is going, you're going to go and destroy those enemies. Those are obvious false prophets. There are obvious false teachers. If I came in here and said, you know what? Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. I'd be thrown out of here so fast because you wouldn't buy that. But if I tended not to mention the death and the burial and the resurrection, if I managed to just talk about the social gospel and the do-gooding things that Christians should do, all of a sudden that message of death, burial, and resurrection, we tend to forget. In Joshua's time, the Bible said that the people were faithful as long as Joshua was around, but when he passed away in the book of Judges, they, they said they forgot. They forgot. Now, forget means what? Not take action, okay? If somebody said to those people, so tell me about the crossing of the Red Sea. All those people would say, yeah, Moses was being chased by the Pharaoh and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and the east wind, and there it goes. They remembered the facts. But the motivation behind the facts, they lost. And that's the message in 2 Peter. You'll remember the facts, but do we react to them? is the question that Peter's asking. So here we are, 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. You can read those other different verses, but the point that I wanted to come was, they will gather around them a great number of teachers with itching ears. They're going, they want people to, they want to hear what they want to hear. And you can turn on the television, and you can find all kinds of Christian messages. Wrong word. You can find all kinds of religious messages. And you can tend to hear what you want to hear. I'll take the news as an example. I don't watch television news anymore, and I get news feeds. And I'll see something, and I'll say, that couldn't possibly be true. And I, I, I read what I want to read. Now, you can say, well, John, you're living in your bubble. You know, say what you want. But that's what we do. It was Walter Cronkite who would say, that's the way it is. And that wasn't the way it was. And we've been in trouble ever since. So that's world news, world facts. But I want to talk about Bible facts. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will wax cold, will grow cold. The more we hear about a television evangelist going to prison, or a pastor running off with the organist, or somebody stealing the treasury. The tendency of people is just to, to get 
further and further away from the, the workings of the church to the point where it's bedside Baptist, and maybe they're watching Mount Vernon on a streaming thing or whatever, you know, any, any church for that matter. And all of a sudden, the body, as we can look back and forth, has been compromised. The author of Hebrews says, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves as the manner of some is, but exhorting or approaching as we see the day approaching. And we're seeing the day approaching. You turn turn on that Ukrainian news, and Jesus is not far behind. Sean and I were talking about the latter chapters of Ezekiel before everybody walked in. On the one hand, I'd love to see peace in Europe. On the other hand, Ezekiel chapter 37 and following talks about wars that'll be big-time wars, and the Antichrist is going to solve those wars. Warnings against apostates. They deny the blood. They deny the power. And those references are, the, are chapter 2 that we're looking at. They deny the word. And how do they do it? First of all, secretly, I just got done saying, if I came out and said Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you would just burn me at the stake right off the bat. But there's 2 Peter 2.1. But there were also false prophets. We read that already. Denying the sovereign Lord, denying his power, denying his power who bought them, and then denying his blood. I've heard a lot of people say, John, you teach a bloody religion. Yeah, I do. We're cover- I'm covered in the blood. The blood passed over me. Peter will cite some Old Testament examples of denying the blood, denying the word, and secretly is the, the, the key word. They don't just come right out and blatantly attack. So what should we do about it? These are perilous times. Look at the verse 5. Have nothing to do with them. Now, you can choose which channel you want to watch on television, if any channel at all. You can choose which church to go to. Very different than other countries. They have a choice of one or none. Remember Lot's wife. I think if, when Christ said that, everybody in the Jewish realm would know exactly what they meant. It wasn't like they had to introduce, well, there was Sodom and there was Jordan and there was... They knew what he meant as soon as he said, remember Lot's wife. Lot's head was in escaping Sodom, but her heart was still there. And so you see this verse from Proverbs, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Verse 3, In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Come back to chapter 1. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. I was introduced some time ago to this Jewish website. It's called Chabad, C-H-A-B-A-D dot org. And like a lot of websites, I'll introduce you to gotquestions.org. That's a Bible reference place with a Christian view. Chabad.org is a Bible knowledge base with a Jewish 
lens. And some of the stuff is interesting. The Bible tells me that Aaron was three years older than Moses, but it doesn't tell me how old Miriam was. And so this thing will take you to some of the ancient, ancient rabbis. It's not, not inspired. And they'll say, well, she was five years older. Well, that doesn't make any, any difference to me. But if, if she were five years old, imagine a five-year-old watching the baby in the Nile. But then I ask them other questions like, when the Bible says, let us make man in our image, who's us? You get some wild answers back from those rabbis because they made it up. Be shepherds of God's flock. Keep them on the author of this thing. This is Peter. He was told, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Be shepherds of the flock and not greedy for money. For example, Paul was a tent maker at Corinth. Why was he working on tents in Corinth? The people weren't established yet, and he didn't want to offend them, say, well, you know, I'll tell you about Jesus if you give me some cash. But now contrast that with Timothy, who says the labor deserves his wages. What's the difference between those two? The tent maker pastor versus the pastor who's deserved... First of all, I'll say this, no matter what you pay a pastor, it's not enough. If there were ever a vote to increase the pastor's salary, I would always vote yes. If it's too much, it's on him to deal with that. But what's the difference between having to be a tent maker versus the labor's worthy of his hire? Establishment. We're established. I trust that everybody in this room is saved. We have a need. The pastor. The pastor has a need. We fulfill. You want a better pastor? I'm not talking about throwing Tony out. You want a better pastor? Pray for the one you've got. Oh, that one got cut off. Oh, see, I, I introduced this already. This is Paul to the elders in Ephesus. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. That's telling me that the pastors are not immune. Keep watch over yourselves and the people as well because you're overseers. Now, I've got one bona fide elder in the room in terms of his office, but each of us, in one way, shape, or form, are elders. You're elders over that baby. You're elders over I can't keep track how many babies. <laughs> and as they get older, their needs change. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Two very interesting cities in contrast. In Ephesus, Paul was there for three years. And he's saying once he's gone, <clears throat> trouble could bubble up. Why was trouble not bubbling up while he was there? That's the verse above. He was keeping track of himself and those that are around him. You contrast Ephesus with Thessalonica. Thessalonica, Paul was there three weeks. Three years, three weeks. And if the clock behaves itself, it won't. 
and we get into chapter 3, Peter's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I've heard some people say, you read Revelation, but you don't teach Revelation. Well, Paul was in Thessalonica just three weeks, and both of those epistles deal with the second coming. And in this context of reminding, he had already taught them that stuff in three weeks. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. I've said many times, don't believe a word I say. Just like the Bereans. Paul said in Acts 17, they were more noble because they searched the scripture to see if what Paul was saying was so. This sentence, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, is 165 words long. Now, I didn't count them. I cut and pasted that into Word, and I put the, pushed the count button. The English teachers would be rolling in their graves the rule of thumb is if it's 14 sentences, if it's 14 words per sentence, make it two sentences. But let's parse this thing apart. So first of all, he's saying, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. The Lord knows how to rescue me. I know in whom I've believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He knows how to do it. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he is able but he also knows how to keep his eye on the unrighteous. Reserved to judgment. You say, John, so-and-so over there is a scoundrel and he's doing so well. That's the short-term view. Luke's Gospel talks about the rich man who fared sumptuously. And the beggar sat at his, his gate and the dogs licked his sores. Lazarus was carried off to Abram's bosom. What does it say about the rich man? He woke up in torment. But Paul's taken three examples. I'm sorry, Peter's taken three examples. Angels, Noah, and Lot. And he uses those examples to underscore the two green and pink things. God knows how to rescue those that he needs to rescue, and he knows how to punish those that he needs to punish. I serve a merciful God, but I also serve a just God. So if you had a choice between mercy and justice, which would you pick? For yourself. I see smiles. Justice. No. <laughs> mercy. 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 It's interesting when you read the book of Psalms, the King James uses that word mercy, mercy, mercy all the time. And a lot of those places, the NIV translates it as love. Well, God is love. But he's also just. I want mercy, mercy, mercy. Remember, that's one of the themes in Peter's epistles, spare versus punish. For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. We covered this Wednesday night in uh, Genesis. We've covered this recently in 1 Peter. I said we're going to cover it quickly in 2 Peter and just as quickly in, in Jude. What is that talking about? Because not all the angels ended up in 
gloomy darkness. We'll say, well, there are the angels and the demons. Well, not all the demons ended up in gloomy darkness because I don't know about you, got plenty of them bothering me. He must not have cast all the sinning angels because there are plenty of demons that are around today. Let's look at Jude. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains unto gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, these are difficult scriptures. And the one commentator wrote, there are probably as many interpretations as there are commentators. But in Genesis, where the Bible says that the sons of God connected with the daughters of men, and then there were giants. Who were the sons of God? Some commentators would say, well, they are the righteous seed of Seth. Well, let me tell you something. There is no righteous seed of Seth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. By the disobedience of one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And if you're talking about saved people getting together with lost women, we would have giants everywhere today because there are plenty of saved men that have married or at least copulated with unsaved women. So that's not the answer. My position is this. You see those asterisks? The position of authority right there? The position of authority is they were made a little, man was made a little lower than the angels. God, angels, man. They left that position of authority and they left their proper dwelling. Well, oh, wrong one. What was their proper dwelling? And the angels, they're ministering spirits. Their proper dwelling is spiritual. Well, we know that the angels have power to become men. You read about the ones that visited Abraham and then ultimately visited Lot. You read in Hebrews chapter 13 that we're supposed to be hospitable because we could be entertaining angels unaware. Nobody came into my house with big old wings. So we know they can become men. Can they give up that position of authority and become biologically functioning men? We don't know. But the point that uh, Peter is making is there are a, there's a whole flock of angels that takes care of us. If you read the book of, of Revelation, chapter 1 talks about the angels of the churches. If you read Daniel, it talks about the angel of Persia, the angel of Israel, which would be Michael, the angel of Tyre, which is in Ezekiel. There are angels that watch over countries. There are angels that watch over churches. And there are angels that watch over you. Now, if the angel has been assigned to me, you think it's possible that the demon, a demon, might be assigned to me? Well, yeah, if you've got an off thought or an off deed, you've got a demon bothering you. So what, Paul, what Peter is saying is God knows how to spare the righteous, but he also knows how to reserve the unrighteous for judgment. He did not spare the ancient world when he protected the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. Noah's mentioned twice by Peter in those two little books Noah comes up. And so I think Peter was really interested in that flood being a salesperson, or not a, a sailor, interested in 
a sailor, right? And if you know the geography, the Sea of Galilee here, and then the mountain just goes up like that. You think he pondered the Noah story as he's down there in the Sea of Galilee thinking about how that water just scooted off that mountain and created that sea? He mentions Noah twice. But there's some really interesting things about Noah. First of all, the world was filled with iniquity. Genesis says that mankind was on, evil was on his heart continually. But let's look at Noah and what he achieved in a civilization where there was no room for Christ. You could say, we live today in a civilization where there's no room for Christ. Well, we're here, so there's some room. First of all, he preached over a hundred years. Can you imagine somebody in the pastorate or evangelism and doesn't see a single soul saved his entire career? He might start scratching his head and say, maybe I should be a car salesman and give up on this preacher thing. He preached for a hundred years. He was picked on. It's not just going out there in front of Walmart and say, yeah, repent because the end is near, and people just ignore you and walk by. He was scoffed at. He was maligned. On top of that, in that world of ungodliness, he managed to find a godly wife. The book of Proverbs says that a godly wife is a good thing. Not only that, they managed to raise three boys who were saved. And they managed to find three Christian girls. What a dad! The righteous, righteous lot. See, back to the spare and the punishment thing. The Lord knew how to spare those eight righteous people. And he knew how to destroy the rest of them. Righteous Lot. The reason I have the King James on there is it says just Lot. And I was so confused with that uh, towards the, the, the beginning of my Christian walk because uh, just means a couple of things. In this case, it meant justified, but in my your early walk, I didn't know that. I'm thinking, how many keys do I have in my pocket? Just one. Was that key sanctified? No, it's, it's only one. But Lot was a saved person, a justice, a righteous person. King James says he was vexed. All right, but let's take a look here. And where does Lot start? And where does Lot end? Lot starts the nephew of Abram, and he started all the way up in Ur of the Chaldees, and he came all the way down, and he became rich, and he was buddy-buddy with Abram, and then what happened? Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley. This is how sin can capture us. First you see something, then he settles among the cities in the Bible, the city is always a picture of sin, with one notable exception, Jerusalem, the city of peace. Two notable exceptions, Hebron, the city of fellowship. He settled among the cities, but he was in a tent. But then we get to chapter 19, and you see that he was living in a house. He went from living among the cities... He went from an occasion of sin 
to living in the city, to living in that hellhole. But you know, and we touched on this Wednesday night, you think of Lot and his two daughters and his missus leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, and you can see them marching off, and in the background you can see Lot turned around, and behind that you see the fire and the brimstone. That's not how it happened. Lot begins by saying, oh, just let me live in another city. Let me live in a different world of sin. It's just a little sin. I'm just a little bit off. This is going to have ramifications both for Lot as well as for uh, the, the rapture. Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape here quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive here. When is the rapture going to happen? As it was in the days of Lot, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. I can do nothing until we arrive there. What are the sins of Sodom? I'll make it easier. What is the sin of Sodom? Sodomy, that's where we get the name sodomy, from the country, from the name Sodom. Well, first of all, homosexuality. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. They were being judged not because the Mosaic law condemns homosexuality. That came out afterwards. They were being judged because it was contrary to nature. There's a law of Moses, there's a law of nature. It was just not natural. And you see again, and the men likewise gave up their natural relations. So the first sin of Sodom, and the one that pops into everybody's mind, is homosexuality. Can anybody think of some other sins that Sodom was guilty of. Willie. That's in Ezekiel. Good man. We're going to get to that one. The second sin of Sodom, insolence and arrogance. They look on their faces, testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. We use this phrase lately, coming out. That means that a body was a homosexual beforehand, but now he's going to parade his homosexuality. He's coming out of the closet. Tolerance leads to endorsement. The Bible says we're supposed to hate the sin but love the sinner. And Josh McDowell writes an awfully lot about to tolerance versus endorsement, especially for our kids that we send off to college. A couple years to think about it. I'm going over. You've got a couple years to think about it yet. Tolerance leads to endorsement. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of the evildoer so that no one turns from his wickedness. Tolerance leads to endorsement. And if you're following news, there are people that are being put out of business because they won't bake a wedding cake or they won't take pictures or they won't do flowers because they're following their conscience. 
the sins of Sodom. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. And Willie, this was the scripture you were thinking about. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, affluence. They did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Many times you hear that chant, USA, USA. Is that not the USA today above there? God knows how to spare and he knows how to punish. Here's Billy Graham. If God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's another quote that you're not too familiar with, I'm sure. You probably can't read that, so I blew it up. Our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone. How many times have you ever heard somebody say, I'm sorry if I offended you? Well, first of all, that's not even an apology, but that's a different, a different conversation. Our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone except God. Yet the farther, that should have been further, the, yet the further we get from God, the more the world spirals out of control. My heart aches for America and its deceived people. Matthew 24. If, if, as, since iniquity, as a, because iniquity abounds, the love of many shall wax cold. Men will come and say, here is Christ and there is Christ, and they would deceive the people. Who knows what happened on February 21st, 2018? I didn't know it either until I looked it up. That was the day Billy Graham died. What happened in those four years? Just some examples. The biggest, we had COVID, right? That hit in 2020. We had some elections that a lot of people feel were faulty. We had revolution in the streets. We've had wars and rumors, rumors of wars, earthquakes in diverse places. Luke tells us that the nations will be perplexed. And, you know, all those things were occurring before 2018, but I think the graph is a parabola. Parabolas are the ones that go like this. Remember that God spares and that he judges. He spares angels and judges demons. He spared Noah and the other seven, and he judged the ungodly. He spared Lot and the others, but he destroyed the ungodly. He remembers the saved, but he judges the saved. Not lost versus saved, but crowns versus no crowns. And 1 Corinthians 3, uh, chapter 3 talks about being saved as if by fire. If my house were on fire, I'd only worry about the other human beings that are in there and not a single bit of earthly possessions, not even my 40-year-old Bible. He's not going to spare the lost, but the lost will be judged according to their works. This is in the context of teachers. Chapter 2 is all about false teachers. God will spare teachers of truth, and he will judge teachers of untruths, held to a different standard. 
So, what theology should we be bulldogmatic on? There are certain things where we're dogmatic, but where would we be bulldogmatic? I mentioned the one very first breath that I came out, and it's not the Bible. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, I said, if I come in and said one of those three is missing, I would be off, and you would know that. On the other hand, there are things where we have room to disagree. There is a flock of churches that say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. There's another flock of churches that say, if you do speak in tongues, you're of the devil. 2 Corinthians 12 through 14 tells you exactly the, the, the scope of tongues, and it's neither one of those things. You know, if there's an evangelistic opportunity, I can chum right up with a Pentecostal or charismatic, whatever label you want to give, and see people saved. That's not a bulldogmatic doctrine. I believe in a pre-trib rapture. I believe in a literal thousand-year reign. But I meet with people for Bible studies all the time that believe something very, very different. There's room for that stuff. The virgin birth. I'm going to add that to the list of bulldogmatic. Why would the virgin birth be a bulldogmatic doctrine? Jesus was fathered by God and not by man, and because he was fathered by God, he was, God. He was the perfect sacrifice. If he was fathered by Joseph or fathered by some Roman soldier, and you hear those kinds of things, he was just another Roman crucifixion, and Christianity is just another cult. He was the perfect sacrifice. And if he wasn't virgin born, the Bible's a lie. And we're still in our sins. And several months ago, I had up on, at the point we were using a different kind of projector, I had up on the wall the number of pastors in the San Diego area that didn't believe the virgin birth. If you don't believe the virgin birth, you don't believe that Jesus is God. And if you don't believe Jesus is God, then you're still in your sins. And Paul says, we of all men would be most miserable. Who knows who Mark Lowry is? What, who, how is he famous? You know who he is, but you're not wise. He wrote that song, Mary, Did You Know? He was also a member of the Bill Gaither song bunch for a long, long time. I don't know if his voice is tired, but now he's a stand-up Christian comedian. And he constantly says, I'm a Baptist and they're Pentecostals and they get signs and wonders and they get healings and they get tongues and I get nothing. He's pointing out that diversity. But while he's using humor to draw people in, he comes back to that same core doctrine. The wages of sin is death. God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's bulldogmatic.
and yet he managed to, to bring humor. The Bible says, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. He, ma he manages to use humor, humor to sort of water down those differences and bring us back to the core. And Peter's do Peter was no comedian, but he Peter's doing the same thing. He's saying, watch out. The marks of false teachers, and we're not going to get to chapter 3. I'm going to finish up on this slide. The marks of false teachers. First, they're bold and willful. You know, a lot of false teachers don't even use the word Jesus. They say, Jesus! They're bold and they're willful. And a lot of them know a lot of scripture. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters they, of which they are ignorant. Paul said to the, to the uh, Galatians, he said, if someone is out there preaching another gospel, the death, burial, resurrection, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. And then he says maranatha, which means come. They have eyes full of adultery and insatiable for sin. You know, when I became saved, I became smarter, not dumber. I became smarter in the sense that a lot of Bible that I had read now made perfectly good sense to me. But you know, a lot of Christians, they're sitting there watching the television, the guy's asking for money, and he said, well, he did say Jesus, and he did say praise the Lord, but these people are not preaching to your souls, they're preaching to your pocketbook. They entice unsteady souls. Ephesians 4, and then I'm going to switch the clicker for this thing. So that they may no longer be children tossed to and, from, to and fro by the waves and the carnal, but by every wind of doctrine. I'll leave with this story. My first, Baptist, my first pastor would say that uh, there was a story of a man who worked for the Treasury Department, and his job was to find counterfeiters. And he was doing an interview, and somebody said, I bet you spend a lot of time studying these counterfeit techniques. He said, no, I just study the real thing, because the more I know about the real thing, the counterfeit stands out. We're way over time.